0: Welcome to Emmaus Footnotes. Our aim is to offer uncomplicated guidance for following Jesus. We have designed this series to serve as a companion to you in this season of Lent. In this episode, Nathan Oates unpacks the battle that takes place within the mind. Listen in. First question I want to ask is where does temptation happen and how do we deal with that? And then we'll go to the, uh, what was the third temptation of Jesus and how did Jesus resist that? So we'll do the where question and the what question a whole lot of good ancient stuff thrown in there right all right so first question where does temptation take place where does temptation take place answer in the mind in the mind even if the initial source of temptation is a physical person is an actual donut is A $50 bill that slips from the pocket, unseen, some passerby, even if there's that initial physical catalyst, the temptation then takes place up in the mind. It happens in the mind. That's where the battle rages. So there's the initial catalyst, like a radio ad for a drink or a billboard for a burger right? Or a really attractive person walks by, or maybe something as direct as an invitation. Hey, you want to try this? And then after that, the battle begins to rage. Where in your mind, what should I do? What do I think? Is that true? What will happen? Should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? I'm so tempted. I'm so tempted. Where is it happening? It's happening in your mind. Now, it's really interesting to me. There's sources of commentary on this passage, the story of Jesus's temptations, both ancient and modern, that point out that it is very unlikely that Satan appeared to Jesus in physical form. It is even less likely that Satan physically took Jesus to stand on the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, which was 35 miles away from the place in the desert where he was tempted. And that it is virtually impossible if you're thinking literally that as we're going to read in the third temptation, that Satan takes Jesus to the top of some mountain from which he can see all of the cities and the kingdoms of the world. Of course, you know, movies and plays and historic art in this scene, they will depict Satan as having some shape. They'll give him some character. He'll have some bodily and physical presence. You've got to give him something, right, in order to tell the story. And of course, art about the story often shows Jesus actually standing on the top of the temple or actually on some mountain uh, and seeing these kingdoms of the world. But I think that we should imagine these temptations happening primarily in Jesus' mind, more like a vision or a battle of the thoughts or a dream, or a fantasy. And this is not to say that the devil isn't real. And this is not to say that he wasn't directly involved. And this is not to say that the temptations weren't real. No, I'm saying the very opposite of that. I'm saying they were completely real. This is why Jesus gathers his disciples around him at this campfire and says, let me tell you what happened to me. Um, He was tempted by the devil He's very clear on that. And he was really tempted. It was tempting. This was a real battle, not some fairy tale show that didn't actually matter. So I'm not going to make an, I don't want to argue about whether or not Satan was like, literally took Jesus to stand on the roof of the temple or literally found some mountain, because that misses the point. My goal is to push us towards clarity. And I simply want to help us recognize, invite you to recognize that the true nature of temptation is not some overly caricatured, simplified idea of how this actually happens. I think that if we oversimplify temptation, we don't help anybody. We, we just make sort of a game out of it, a childish thing out of temptation. If, as John Chrysostom writes, he's a 4th century Christian pastor, Jesus' temptations are for our instruction, well, then we need to realize where and how these temptations actually took place. I'm simply inviting us to recognize that temptation primarily happens up here. It happens up here. This is where the battle rages. On one level, yes, it's important to recognize that temptation happens in an office or at the gym or while traveling for work or temptation happens online. But it's even more important, I think, to recognize that temptation happens in your head, in your mind, in your thoughts, right up here. We might even say in your spirit. So why is that important to to recognize? It's important because if you see temptation as primarily physical, then the solution is easy. Get rid of the physical, right? Don't go to the office or change offices or get a subscription at a different gym or don't have alcohol or ice cream or whatever your go-to is in your home. Stop traveling for work. Buy a flip phone, right? Just remove the physical, but that actually won't solve the problem. And you and I both know that it won't solve the problem and it won't solve the problem for two reasons. One you can remove some physical triggers. You can remove some physical sources of temptation and you absolutely should, but you will never be able to remove all of them, right? Cause you live on earth. So you'll never be able to remove all of the physical uh, sources or triggers. And the second reason that seeing temptation is primarily physical is not totally helpful is because you and I both know that the real problem is not happening at work. The real problem is not happening at the office. It's not happening at the gym. It's not happening on the cell cell phone because the real problem isn't physical. The real problem is up here. The real problem is the temptation that's raging in our thoughts. That's where truth is being twisted. That's where the the false narrative is being replayed over and over and over and starting to shape your behaviors. That's where temptation's happening. It's the battle in the mind. One of the places that Jesus talks about this is in the very next chapter of Matthew chapter five, where he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus is saying the battle is won or lost in the will And we moderns think of the will as a function of the mind. Ancients, like Jesus, think of the will as seated in the soul or seated in the heart. But wherever you feel it's located or whatever you call it, heart, soul, mind, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the battle is actually won or lost in the mind where your desire and your will go toe to toe. Whatever you call that, wherever that is for you, the place where what you want to do and what you choose to do gets worked out. That's where the battle is. the place where what you want to do, or are tempted to do, and what you choose to do gets worked out. Seeing temptation as a battle of the mind, it doesn't make it any less serious. It points actually to the epicenter of the issue. It takes us right to the core where the struggle is actually happening. And this is why it's important for us to imagine Jesus's temptations as accurately as we possibly can. And that's why it's worth asking this question, where does temptation take place? Recognizing temptation and deception in the battle for our true identity as a largely cognitive thing or mental thing related to thinking and believing, it puts the focus where the focus should be, friends, not out there, in here. That's where the focus should be because this is where the battle needs to be won right? Are there some outside stimuli? Absolutely. We see something, we hear something, we're offered something, but then the battle moves up here and it rages up here and the battle takes place where no one else can see it. That's why it's just so insidious. And that's why you have to develop this skill, this ability, this basic level of recognition and response. Because if I see you responding physically in a way that is destructive, I can help you, but I can't see what's happening in here and you can't see what's happening in my head. So it can go unrecognized and it can be un- like the priority on our mind can be so undervalued that we, we we grow up and we never even have a sense of like this ability or this skill set to do battle where battle actually happens. All right, let me offer you four clarifying statements. I have found these so helpful. First, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And he writes in James 1, the end of the Bible, he's got a little letter. And he says this, he's going to give us like a theology of how temptation affects us in our behavior. He says this, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Okay, we're still talking about temptation. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James is sketching out this whole process. Starts with a stimulus, moves to a desire, then a temptation, then a choice is made and then an action follows and then there's a consequence. Or to use James's words, this is the process of desire to death. How desire can lead to death. Okay. Now, why is that clarifying at all? It's clarifying because of this. James is essentially saying the battle starts in the mind and it can end there. It can end there. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you are caught into some current from which you have no escape and it's just like it's inevitable you're just going to sin again you're going to cause more destruction no temptation begins in the mind <clears throat> and it can end there you can end it right there before it even becomes a sin here's a second thing that I think is really clarifying this is saint jerome mentioned him last week he's the first guy to translate the greek into latin the, the new testament he says referring to satan's second temptation of jesus where he says throw yourself down He says, the devil cannot push you. He can only persuade you. That's been very helpful to me the last few weeks. The devil cannot push you. He can only persuade you. Jerome's theme in this sermon is Satan is so limited. He's so limited. When I was in fifth grade, my little sister was in third grade. We'd walk home from the school bus, bus stop with a very big and very insecure eighth grader. (laughs) And uh, he would bully us the whole way. He would say mean things to us, he would insult us, he would teach us all these terrible words. He would he would be rude, he would be pushy, intimidating, and then one day it turned physical. One day it turned physical. Cuz that's what bullies can do. Bullies are bigger than you, they can push you around, they can hurt you. But friends, Satan is a liar. He's a liar. He's a fraud. He can he can't push you. He can only try to persuade you. He's so limited. He's so limited. As a theologian from the early uh, stages of the Christian faith, second century, the guy's name is Origen, reflecting on the story of Jesus' temptations, he writes this. I think this is clarifying. He says, the devil's words are irrational and untrue. The devil's words are irrational and untrue. In other words, if sin sounds like a good idea to you, if you think your life's actually gonna get better in that direction, you are being deceived right now, right? Sin is irrational and it is untrue. You are buying into a line of thinking that is, by definition, irrational. Those are the devil's words. They don't make sense. They will not provide what he's promising. They are untrue. You should reject them. The devil's words are irrational and untrue. If you feel tempted into something and you start trying to make sense of it, like, huh, maybe that could work out, like, whoa, no. No, you're you're playing according to a set of rules that are fundamentally skewed. Don't even go there. Fourth, Gregory the Great, rich guy, fifth century, sells everything he has, becomes a Benedictine monk, and then in 590 he's elected Pope of the Roman Church. He writes this The devil subjugated Adam through consent. That's good the devil subjugated Adam through consent. In other words, the devil was able to control and overpower and bring Adam to his knees because Adam essentially gave him permission to do so. Not explicitly, because that's not the way it works. You typically don't say, force of evil and destruction, come on into my life and destroy everything that matters to me. You don't say that, but essentially that's what we do when we give in to temptation when we buy the lie, when we go in that direction, because Satan can't push you. He can only try to persuade you. The way he subjugates Adam is because Adam gives him permission. He gives him consent. The devil will use our own consent and can only affect us when we give, so, when we give him consent. So to recap those four clarifying statements, temptation does not have to lead to sin. Temptation starts in the mind. You can end it there. Secondly Jerome the devil cannot push he can only persuade origin realize that satan's words are irrational and untrue don't believe those lies and gregory satan can't make you do anything the devil made me do it no he didn't you chose you gave consent so reject the deal next time it's offered don't say yes to that anymore don't trade your feathers in for worms just listen to episode 30 of Emmaus Footnotes. We'll see you next week.